Coping 19, brought to you by CDC and the Ad Council. If you're feeling increasingly lonely right now, you're not alone. It's totally normal. Even though we may not be able to get together in person, connecting virtually with friends and family still gives you a chance to interact with people and may help raise your spirits. Join a virtual book club, set up group text chats, or online video coffee breaks with coworkers. Find more self-care and coping tips at coping-19.org. People who follow soccer will certainly tell you the South Americans were always the best at controlling the ball in tight spots, and that's, of course, important in this game. The L.A. Lasers have a couple of players, Beto and Batata. They are from Brazil, and they are able to create a lot of excitement with their ball dribbling skills. They sure are, and, of course, uh, the, the local uh, fans here, are many of them, I think, are Latins, and they want to see that kind of play. Poli Garcia, also an American citizen, but with, of course, a Latin background, is very, very strong. Another player to watch out for is an Englishman, Stuart Lee, who's leading the club in scoring, and many people felt that Stuart was finished when he left the Portland Timbers in the NASL a few years ago, but he's resurfaced, done very well indoors, and he's very crafty and gets into good positions, so he complements the skill out front by being very uh, clever and getting behind defenders. So what do you think is important for the Cosmos to do tonight? What did they learn last night uh, as far as a team performance goes that they can carry into tonight's game? Well, I think they learned the most important lesson, which is that you don't play the way the other team plays. They cannot compete with the San Diego's and the Los Angeles club by playing the way they play. They have to play their own game. Tonight, I expect Los Angeles to come out and put a lot of uh, sort of full-court pressure on the club, particularly in the middle of the field, winning the ball there. They have to find a way to beat that pressure and get their attack going. It requires, once again, a heavy dose of patience. Two years ago, Los Angeles was 8-40. and 40. Last year, 24-24. and 24. And now, 9-4. and four. They are a team on the move, and tonight's challenge for the Cosmos. Back to the Forum in Inglewood, California, right after these messages on Sports Channel. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how you doing everybody? It's your pal Tim. Once again, it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to what used to be in professional sports. That's what we like to do around here. And uh, thank you for uh, coming by and we welcome you, of course, to the proceedings, whether you're new or old or somewhere in between uh, in this uh, fun little journey that we've been on for almost four years. Uh, we uh, thank you for coming by and uh, let's get into uh, a fun and a very intriguing conversation this week uh, with our new pal, Johnny Buss. And yes, of course, if you know that surname, you know that is synonymous with professional sports over the last 30 plus years in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. Of course, the Buss family well-known from the founding of uh, uh, the late, great Dr. Jerry Buss, who was, by you know all accounts, uh, sort of a uh, an accidental sports entrepreneur. And as we'll hear in our conversation with Johnny Buss, um, you know, this goes back to the sports uh, angle of the Buss family to uh, the late uh, Jack Ken Cook, uh, obviously well-known as almost the uh, generation prior, if you will. And and the bus uh, uh, legacy, uh, picking up where uh, Kent Cook kind of left off with uh, teams like the legendary Los Angeles Lakers, of course, the most recent NBA champion, um, world champion at that, helmed by uh, one of Jerry's daughters, of course, the well-known Jeannie Bus, uh, sister to Johnny, uh, and um, the Los Angeles Kings, of course, and. Uh, a whole bunch of other things, the forum, 
uh, was uh, absolutely central, uh, a showcase for for all of that, both uh, in the past and um, not only those uh, those teams, but uh, a bunch of others that um, we're going to kind of get into uh, with our conversation with Johnny. Um, and make no mistake, we've had uh, some previous uh, chats with uh, folks like Ronnie Weinstein and, and others in, in the Los Angeles sort of sports um, uh, realm. And, you know, this is a multi-layered uh, family story, uh, one with uh, uh, tremendous successes uh, some very interesting uh, uh, challenges, uh, and frankly, a family dynamic that uh, continues to uh, be like most families, uh, not uh, always uh, clear cut, uh, not always uh, cordial, not always uh, seeing eye to eye. Um, and we get into some of that, of course, with with Johnny and as it relates to uh, his upbringing, uh, being part of the bus family and the uh, the just a tremendous success of, of dad. Uh, the siblings as how they were part or not part uh, or encouraged to be or not encouraged to be as part of uh, this uh, budding at the time over the 70s and 80s and, and 90s uh, sports empire, uh, the, uh, the, the the white hot spotlight, of course, that comes with that, uh, not only sort of being in the uh, in the, the realm of pro sports, but also Los Angeles and the Mecca of entertainment. Um, it is uh, an ongoing story. It's a, it's a fascinating one at that. And as you're going to discover in our conversation with, with Johnny in a few moments, uh, just steeped uh, in a lot of the things we like to revel in on this little show. That's Those are teams and, and leagues and, and situations that, uh, for whatever reasons, don't exist anymore. But as you'll hear in our chat, foundational uh, to the successes that the organization uh, is still experiencing, a la with the Lakers and, and Jeannie Buss, she uh, having gotten a, a, a huge um, early taste of pro spo- sports uh, operations and ownership. Um, as we'll talk about with Johnny, uh, the LA Strings, uh, part of the original World Team Tennis and then the successor, one of the successors, uh, Team Tennis. Um, that was uh, one of uh, Jeannie's uh, first uh, sports uh, uh, management uh, jobs, uh, Roller Hockey International. Uh, the Los Angeles franchise is part of that. And of course, we've uh, discussed uh, some of that with uh, a few folks in previous episodes. Um, but Johnny, of course, uh, not only sort of a, 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 a partial part of some of those stories, uh, the strings in particular, but also on his own, running his own stuff, too, as part of this empire. Uh, in particular, the Los Angeles Lasers of the Major Indoor Soccer League. Uh, that little clip there that you heard from December 22nd, 1984, featuring the dulcet tones of Al Troutwig and Seamus Mallon on Sports Channel uh, in New York back in the day. That was the Cosmos, the mighty New York Cosmos, yes, in their almost, well, they're almost one season. They kind of folded halfway through it in the major indoor soccer league, uh, playing the Los Angeles Lasers. And you heard a little bit of what the Lasers were up to in the 84-85 season, their third season. Uh, Johnny uh, at the helm, uh, and you could hear in the description having started uh, just abysmally uh, in their first season, not, not at the gate, but also especially on the field. And coming off a season where they were at 500 and making the playoffs, uh, this was a team uh, in the early part of the 84-85 season, as you heard from that clip, uh, on the you know on the mend, if you will, and, and certainly 
uh, looking to continue to move uh, move upward. And we hear the story of the lasers from the inside. This is uh, the guy, Johnny Buss, uh, who was the president of this organization, the liaison, I guess, to uh, the Buss Corporation, if you will. Obviously, uh, Jerry, a big believer in the MISL, a big believer in Jerry, uh, to legitimize the MISL on a national basis by having a franchise in Los Angeles, the second largest uh, metropolis in the country and obviously an entertainment capital. Uh, and we'll hear uh, from Johnny sort of how challenging uh, it was to run that franchise. And, uh, you know, it being the third or sometimes fourth tier tenant of uh, of the fabulous forum. Um, but also we hear uh, some of the sort of intricacies, I guess, of being part of the bus family dynamic. And you'll hear, frankly, uh, some tension there. Uh, Jeannie getting some uh, some looks, if you will, in uh, in some of the uh, the operations, perhaps maybe that uh, Johnny or his brother, uh, you know, or others in the family not sort of getting, uh, thinking they may perhaps should have, um, yet at the same time wanting to see the entire organization succeed. The uh, the the operation of the uh, the forum where most of these teams and franchises were domiciled. Uh, part and parcel of of the success of that uh, of that uh, that family operation. Um, the L.A. Sparks, uh, as part of this story too, the original ownership, the founding of it, uh, Johnny, part of that dynamic as well. The president of that organization for a whole bunch of years. Uh, the WNBA getting that off the ground when not everybody believed in that proposition and the NBA's backing and all that stuff. We get into all of that, a little bit of the L.A. strings, very interesting background stories that I didn't know about. Certainly the uh, L.A. Lasers of the Major Indoor Soccer League, which Johnny was president of for a bunch of years. And, of course, the L.A. Sparks, the original ownership group that uh, the bus family led by Johnny was part of. That and a whole bunch of other things, some of it uh, wistful, some of it uh, still... Um, uh, a little bit uh, raw, I guess, and uh, a lot of it very inspirational and certainly revelatory uh, with our conversation with our new pal, Johnny Buss, coming up in just a few moments. Yeah, we, you know, obviously we know about sort of the strains about the Lakers ownership and all that stuff. We kind of we kind of get into that, but we try to stick with uh, the uh, the matters at hand as we get into all of those uh, uh, various uh, discussions about uh, the teams as part of that that were foundational and for whatever reasons no longer uh, with us uh, as is our want on this silly little show. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, you will enjoy it. I uh, I'm I'm certain of that. And uh, let's get to a couple of sponsors uh, that I think are thematically uh, very well uh, attuned to uh, uh, this conversation. The topics that uh, we get into with Johnny uh, and let's uh, spin that dial. Let's go to. How about we start with OldSchoolShirts.com? Sure. Uh, that's uh, P.F. Wilson and his pals in uh, Cincinnati. OldSchoolShirts.com. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Fantastic T-shirts. Uh, if you want 10% off all of your purchases, well, then use that code GOODSEATS at checkout to get, uh, to get those savings early and often. And, of course, uh, amongst uh, the zillions of, of shirts across sports and um uh, radio stations and retail uh, locations no longer with us. So all kinds of uh, nods to uh, the nostalgia of the past, of course, is the beautiful Los Angeles Lasers indoor soccer T-shirt. It's got that great, cool and very unique Los Angeles Lasers uh, logo on it. And uh, it's uh, it's a fantastic way to sort of commemorate not only 
uh, the lasers, this, but this conversation, the memory of the lasers and uh, the blood, sweat and tears that, uh, that Johnny Buss and his team put together in the early years of that MISL franchise. Uh, that and much, much more for you at oldschoolshirts.com, promo code, good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And of course, while you're shopping, how about going over to our pals at streakersports.com as well. They are the purveyor of sports culture. After all, and if you go to the shop by city tab at streakersports.com, and why don't you just dial up Los Angeles? Well, okay, there you're going to find a ton of great stuff uh, celebrating lots of teams uh, of your in uh, the Los Angeles metropolitan area. One, of course, we draw your attention to is the 1967 Los Angeles Kings founding year T-shirt. Uh, a great 1967 commemoration of the birth of the Kings. Yes, birthed uh, and owned originally by uh, the late Jack Kent Cook. But obviously that one of the teams that Cook sold uh, to Jerry Buss and became part of the uh, Buss uh, dynasty in professional sports in Los Angeles. What, what a great way to celebrate not only that franchise, but of course our conversation coming up with Johnny. Uh, and again, that's at streakersports.com. You're going to see a ton of great sports stuff there too. All kinds of great defunct league stuff. And and it's just, it's a massive and high quality offering uh, waiting for you there. And of course, we've got a promo code for you at that site as well. And of course, that's good seats for 15% off all of your purchases there at streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Our thanks to both of our fine sponsors this week. Uh, for their support of the show. And of course, we thank you for listening intently uh, to our conversation coming up. Here it is with Johnny Buss. We talk the LA Lasers. We talk the LA Strings. We talk the LA Sparks. We talk about the Buss family. We talk about all of it. As always, please enjoy. Well, let us start just with the the today, because for those sort of who... Uh, live on another planet and or don't understand uh, the Lakers story and obviously their uh, the, the recent uh, championship. And again, congratulations. Uh, what is your uh, what are you what's your role today sort of in the uh, uh, in the Lakers organization and what else uh, do you do? Uh, and then we'll kind of kind of kind of backtrack into perhaps a little bit of the journey of how you got uh, to where you are today. Well, uh, currently, uh, basically, I'm retired. So <laughs> uh, I really don't do much with the Lakers anymore other than uh, sign a few papers and uh, make sure that everybody's doing the right thing as far as uh, uh, the financial side of things. And beyond that, uh, you know, it's now Jeannie Buss's team, basically. But you're still part of the, the familial ownership structure of the team, yeah? Yes, I, I'm still part of the trust that owns uh, the Lakers. Yes, right, and that's and obviously, obviously that's a big part of of the story, right? Because as we dial it back, right, um, uh, obviously it all starts with uh, your uh, your late father, and um, I, I guess I think uh, an appropriate sort of way to sort of start that is you're the oldest of the uh, of the Bus uh, clan. Um, I, I guess I'd love to know sort of. You know, a little bit, of course, what it was like to sort of grow up, uh, you know, in uh, in the bus household. But I guess I'm really interested most specifically as to sort of when you kind of sort of became aware of 
the sports thing and how big of a thread it was in your dad's life and what we, it maybe was going to become. So as the uh, firstborn boy, <laughs> uh, uh, see, I'm 64 now, 1956. Uh, when I was born, I was born uh, basically on campus at, uh, at USC, not literally, but uh, uh, he was a professor and still uh, obtaining his doctorate uh, from USC at the time I was born. So uh, since I was a little baby, he was a sports fanatic. Uh, I'm telling you that uh, from the time I remember, I have been to every USC football game, uh, baseball game, basketball game, Uh, He used to take me around uh, to every sport uh, as much as he could do. Uh, As a little kid going to a Dodger game, uh, the the Lakers at the sports arena uh, way back when. Uh, He was an absolute sports fanatic, but I think (laughs) that because I was so young and I was dragged to all of these sports and had to sit out in the the hot sun at the Coliseum, um, you know, I started trying to find other things to do rather than watch the games. I I just never got into the game itself. And so I would end up watching, uh, you know, the the vendors, like the peanut uh, vendors and uh, how people uh, cheered and, you know, what people liked and what they didn't like. And that ultimately became uh, uh, my education into marketing for sports. Uh, but, you know, with my dad, he was, <laughs> he was all about winning. He was all about USC uh, winning. Uh, he was all about our local Los Angeles teams winning. And he would get very upset when, when we lost games. Um, you know, two or three days later, he'd, he'd come out of his shell and say, OK, well, we lost that game. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a great time. You know, it was, it was wonderful to be able to go uh, sport to sport uh, as a young child and and really understand and learn about each and every sport um, through my father's eyes, especially. And uh, not only that, I got to watch him uh, graduate as a doctor from USC. Not literally, I was only one year old. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, he had moved to Boston. He became not a Celtics fan, but he certainly enjoyed going to the Celtics games. And, uh, uh, but he didn't like the cold, so he moved back to Los Angeles. And, uh, you know... Lo and behold, he uh, uh, he started working in real estate, made a fortune, and uh, uh, his early days, uh, he had the the person you know, <laughs> Dennis Murphy, uh, came to his office and said, "Hey, how would you like to buy a tennis team?" Uh, and of course, as a sports fan, he jumped at the chance. Yeah, so let's let's back up there for a second because USC obviously a big part sort of of this, right? So a couple of things to unpack there. So first of all, I think not many people sort of know or remember or even understood that uh, your dad kind of uh, was 
uh, academically focused on the field of chemistry, right? He was on the, uh, the he was on the uh, the staff at USC in the chemistry department. He uh, got his PhD in it. Uh, uh, I, I would would you say he stumbled into real estate, or it 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 was it wasn't his sort of original career idea, right? No, he. Uh... I don't know that that uh, chemistry was actually his desired career, but uh, uh, because he was so good at it and because he got through school so quickly with it, uh, you know, there were aerospace companies that wanted him to uh, to join them. And so he ended up that's why he went ended up in Boston. Uh, and I forget which which uh, aerospace company that was uh, functioning out of Boston at that time. But when he finally came back to Los Angeles, he started with, uh, I think it was McDonnell Douglas. And uh, uh, I think he worked with TRW for a little bit. And uh, he started working on uh, rockets for uh, uh, rocket fuel uh, for uh, satellites and things that uh, uh, the government and NASA was putting up. Uh, but then they switched him to uh, military uh, rocket fuel, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's when he said, uh, I don't want anything to do with killing other people. And so he started talking around uh, to others who worked with him, and he said, gosh, you know, if we all pulled $1,000, we could put a down payment on this little apartment building in West Los Angeles. And uh, uh, I think it was like a six unit or eight unit apartment uh, uh, complex. And uh, uh, they all said, yeah, we should do that. And he started pulling everybody's money together. Uh, everybody had their own job of either painting or gardening or uh, pool <laughs> cleaning, whatever it might have been. Uh, and that's when it all started. Uh, you know, this was in the, uh, of course, early 60s. And uh, uh, actually late 50s, early 60s. So uh, uh, it was a good it was a good thing. And uh, he didn't want to stop there because uh, now all of a sudden he he was in charge of owning property with investors. Uh, and the next step was to buy another building. So he got more investors around, uh, mostly aerospace people that he worked with, uh, and started investing in another building and then another building and another building and more investors. And, you know, soon he had well over 300 investors and, uh, you know, <laughs> He started moving into the Santa Monica area, especially uh, to the point where he was able to uh, now uh, uh, actually construct and build uh, new apartment complexes in Santa Monica. Uh, and it was all good. You know, everything was going well uh, until about 1973 or I think it was when Dennis Murphy knocked on his door and, and said, boy, you're you're doing very well. Uh, how would you like to buy a tennis team? And that's when, when it all came together. So, that, so that's very interesting. So there is that intersection then between Dennis and your father on, on that. And, and if we recall our, our, some of our conversations with Dennis, right, uh, 
uh, as was sort of uh, uh, par for the course, if you will, with the ABA, the WHA, the WFL, World Team Tennis, it, a lot of it was, I don't want to say circling around the marks in a various market, right? But <laughs> looking at franchises and selling those franchises maybe first and foremost before maybe even the sport or the integrity or the rules or any of that kind of stuff, right? So I suspect that a little bit of that uh, Dennis Murphy magic, right, was – uh, I don't know, uh, polishing up the ego a little bit too, perhaps, and maybe getting your dad to go from, I don't know, sports fan and and uh, just you know, uh, personal side interest to something more substantial and God forbid professional. Yeah, well, you know, that's how Dennis Murphy got his nickname as Brooklyn Bridge uh, Murphy because he could sell <laughs> pretty much to anybody. Uh, and as the story goes, uh, Dennis was actually talking to uh, other people in Los Angeles at that time. And uh, the people that he talked to all declined his offer to buy a, a tennis team. And uh, he just happened to be reading the paper uh, that day. And there was an article about my father and uh the article stated how, uh, you know, he went from one apartment building to maybe a dozen at that time. And uh, uh, Dennis looked at that and said, oh, well, here's here's a guy that they talk about his his love of USC and the Trojan uh, sports. And he might be a good guy to talk to. So that's that's how Dennis found out about my father was through the newspaper article <laughs> about uh, real estate. All right, so two questions. Number one, why tennis and, and, and why not perhaps something else? Because obviously tennis was part of a whole bunch of other various pro sports exploits. And I guess secondly, where are you in all of this and your awareness or care, frankly, for any of it? <laughs> well, the... For, the the second question first, uh, I was in high school and uh, uh, I was working after high school at in the mail room over at the real estate office. Uh, and, you know, I'd always stop in to see my dad and, uh, you know, my dad just said, hey, you know, uh, I, I got a, a strange phone call today. And I'm meeting this guy, and he told me about it. And I go, gosh, that's interesting, a tennis team. Uh, don't they play individual? <laughs> it's not really a team, is it? He says, yeah, but they're putting together a team sport. So uh, let's see what he has to say. Now, as far as the first question, um, I think my dad was just thirsty for any anything that knocked on his door. I think that if Dennis had come in and said, uh, hey, we have a hockey franchise <laughs> for you to buy, uh, that he might have listened to that. But I don't think he was uh, truly financially capable of going into uh, maybe hockey or basketball at that time. Um, but this seemed like, uh, wow, you know, I, I can I can get into sports for, gosh, whatever he was selling it for at that time. I think uh, I think he he said that it was a, a million dollars uh, to buy a team. And my dad said, well, uh, how about if I <laughs> pay you a lot less than that? <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe I can help. And, you know, it, 
it was actually maybe two salesmen talking to each other <laughs> at that time. And I think my dad got a, a huge discount on the Los Angeles franchise. Yeah, well, I it, uh, probably also too a discount from what, right? A discount off. <laughs> uh, but I digress. But but, but I, I'm gonna guess though that this also kind of it it's indicative, right? Uh, and this is not sort of meant to be sort of a you know a complete just a story about about your dad, right? Because I want to get into sort of your 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 lean forward into into the sports stuff too. But I, I get the sense that the sports thing. It became another sort of, um, I don't know, society kind of centric thing, right? It's it's one thing to have a growing and successful real estate investment entity and and pretty being well known as uh, a successful real estate entrepreneur and, and investor and, and all the stuff that comes from all of that, right? But it's quite another thing. And we've seen and heard this time and time again, there is a there's a big sort of ego trip that comes along, especially in the 70s, right, when it, re, with regards to professional sports, right, of any kind, frankly, um, because there's a sort of a certain cachet there, right? There's a certain uh, carte blanche there. There's, a, there's, a, there's the, the entertainment and celebrity a, uh, essence or adjunct there, too. I, I'm guessing, right? I, your dad's probably got some aspect of, of some of that that he's intrigued by with this team, not just to own a team. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, my my father at that time uh, was basically separated from my mother. And, uh, you know, he was dating the young girls and going out to clubs. And uh, he invested in a few motion pictures uh, at that time. He uh, uh, for a very short period of time, I think it was like three months, he had a uh, an office at Paramount Studios. Uh, because he was working with uh, uh, investing in a few pictures, so he got his uh, uh, producer credits. But um, <laughs> so, so uh, business-wise, he had a wandering eye beyond what he was doing real estate-wise. Yeah, he he certainly liked that Hollywood lifestyle, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, you know, the the movies that he invested in never made him any money, probably lost money in that uh, quite extensively, probably. But uh, well, you're saying the movie Black Eye with uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson was uh, not uh, Academy Award winning material, huh? Not and, quite. And for our listeners, you can look that one up. It's, I think it was 1974 or 75. Uh, That's correct. Fred, That's Fred, correct. Fred so, Williamson in, in, his, in a star turn in Black Eye. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, but of course, they filmed that about a year earlier, and it was about a, at the same time that uh, uh, this whole team tennis thing was going on. So uh, there's no question that my dad wanted to get into the Hollywood lifestyle and stay there. He enjoyed it. Um, he, he, yeah, he loved. Um, I don't want to bring up other names, but uh, you know, it was kind of like the downfall of the Don Sterling thing where uh, Don was a real estate magnet and uh, a prominent lawyer in Los Angeles, but still he was only just Don Sterling until he wanted to get into sports with my father. So, uh, um, you know, my, my dad was instrumental in negotiating the, uh, the buyout of the San Diego Clippers at that time for Don Sterling. So uh, once Don Sterling did that, uh, of course, Don became... 
uh, or wanted to become Mr. Hollywood. Uh, he wanted to buy himself into the Hollywood lifestyle. And that was the best way to do it through sports. Uh, everybody uh, had a had a love for for sports. Uh, so in the Hollywood lifestyle, either you had to be involved in motion pictures or or sports. All right. So let, let's get into sort of your sort of journey into into sports, because I'm assuming it wasn't sort of necessarily sort of a straight line, right? Because you're, you're we're, we're talking about being in the mailroom in, in dad's company. Uh, you're being exposed to all kinds of stuff. Obviously, when you're you're sharing sports adventures with him, uh, you you sort of see an eye towards the mechanics and the business around it versus, say, maybe the competition or the actual teams and the and the uh, the players and all that kind of stuff. But uh, help us draw a line from sort of that that sort of early awareness, perhaps, frankly, around your father's early awareness uh, around pro sports into, I guess, what we'll get into some of your f- first professional uh, taste in that. I- I'm assuming this thing called the forum was part of it and sort of the, the the circus tent, I guess, of the things that were part of all of that were probably maybe catalytic in all of that for you. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was exciting. I mean, uh, being 16 years old and, and uh, you know, the, and just being thrown into this when, uh, I mean, it, it really did feel like an overnight uh, situation where, uh, hey, Johnny, I'm, I'm buying a, a tennis team and, and uh, guess who's part owner? Uh, Johnny Carson. And, oh wow! This is really crazy. And uh, he says, "Yeah, we're going to play at the uh, at the Los Angeles Sports Arena, and uh, it's going to be really exciting. You know, you're going to be around, uh, uh, you know, these these great tennis uh, names, Billie Jean King, and uh, you know, people like that. Uh, it was it was it was kind of so fast and furious, uh, especially for a 16, 17 year old at that time. Uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, instead of taking my date to the movies, I got to take my date to uh, a, a tennis match and give her the VIP treatment, you know, and say, Oh yeah, my father owns this team, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that was kind of fun. But um, again, it was more, uh, I wasn't as interested in the sport itself as I was the marketing of, uh, of it all. And, uh, I would talk to my dad and he'd say, wow, wasn't that a great match? And I said, yeah, dad, but you know what, if the lighting was a little bit different over in that, uh, far corner, and if we did, <laughs> you know, I, I would always talk about everything else other than the sport itself or the game. Uh, that was played. So uh, uh, he started to uh, confide in me as uh, as maybe the, the first marketing person that he ever hired. <laughs> you know, uh, and it and it felt good to be so young. Uh, of course, some of my ideas were were probably silly as as hell, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it was really a, a, a great deal of fun and um, uh, meeting all the tennis players, traveling around. We got to travel, you know, all, to all these wonderful uh, <laughs> uh, places where they, they had team tennis. Uh, and, 
as you know, it was a very loose league, and some of these uh, some of the games were played outdoors. Uh, so most of them were played indoors. Uh, some of them were played in large arenas. Some were played in, in obscure gyms <laughs> around the country. So uh, it was it was quite a an education for sure, not only for me but especially for my dad, uh, because he and his intelligence, he basically became the uh, the leader of the pack. You know, um, uh, yes, we had, uh, um, uh, you know, gosh, I, I forget who was, uh, obviously, uh, Dennison, uh, who was it? Um, I forget, but uh, uh, his education through team tennis was, was amazing. Uh, the only problem that he had was that he fell in love with the sport. He loved team tennis. He loved the players. And so what he ended up doing was uh, as, as one team was maybe faltering and wanting to leave the, the league, he would end up either getting one of his friends to, to buy one of the teams or he would buy another uh, second team. Um, and, <laughs> uh, I think at, at one point we owned three or four uh, team tennis teams, uh, but of course not not directly, but certainly indirectly through one of his friends. Meaning that uh, his friend was just this figurehead <laughs> of of the team, but actually my dad ran it. Well, that so I gotta stop you there. That's that's interesting. I, I is are we breaking news fifty years later here uh, on this? Because I I don't know if that was <laughs> I don't I don't know I don't know if that's uh, widely known. Uh, any particular teams and, and situations that you might remember around that? Well, sure. Uh, you know uh, the the real estate company was called Mariani Bus, and Frank Mariani was the Mariani of of the uh, uh, of the real estate empire. And uh, Frank Mariani was just so happened to be the owner of the San Diego Friars. Uh, and interesting enough, uh, my uncle, uh, Dennis Hall, uh, was the owner of the uh, Orange County. Uh, oh, God, what was it? Were uh, the Rackets? The, the Orange, Orange County. No, that was Phoenix Rackets, was it? Oh, I think you're right. Uh, I'll look at it. Uh, Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, okay. wouldn't you know I forget. But, Interesting. Okay. Uh, was it? Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, so there's three right there. And then I think we had uh, the last one was in either in, I think it was in Indiana, uh, Indiana Loves or something yeah, like that. The Indiana Loves which started in uh, their 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 lives in Detroit and I think the Anaheim Oranges is what you're uh, referring mm. to. Where It was the Oranges, yes. Which was the converted Soviet or the Soviets, the Soviet national team. Yeah, there's a whole sort of uh, thing there, but and this is very interesting, right? So you're you're kind of it seems like your dad's like uh, angling on sort of owning as many of the Southern California franchises, well then in plus Indiana. But that's interesting. So that was the, but that wasn't publicly known or kind of was it or was it sort of a an un uh, unkept secret I, I, or what i think it would have been easy to figure it out <laughs> so I, I don't think it was a huge secret 
However, it, it wasn't publicly stated. Of course not. And uh, uh, I think he even lent money to the San, Diego, uh, the, uh, San Francisco team or the Oakland team, one of those. Um, and uh, uh, in order to keep them alive, <laughs> I, you know, he was loaning money. So, you know, he, he just he loved world team tennis. He really, really loved it. Uh, he he had a, a, a great rapport with the players um, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, ultimately we we had Chris Everett in there. Uh, I ended up getting engaged to uh, Diane Frumholtz, uh, who played both for, <laughs> surprisingly, the Indiana team, the San Diego team, and <laughs> the Los Angeles team. Uh, so uh, uh, we got traded quite often, but it was really um, because my dad was able to control each and every one of those teams. Uh, he got to move around the players to to fit a uh, just to make it fit and 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 work because he did not want the WTT to fail. Uh, he loved it too much. Uh, but at that time, where it was like, oh, this is really getting uh, a little too much. Where he, he's buying or he, he's controlling these other teams. He's lending money to other owners. And uh, that's exactly the same time that Jack Kent Cook uh, said, uh, hey, you know, he, he came to my dad and said, you should be playing at the forum if you really want to, uh, you know, you, if you want to join the big time, why don't you play at the forum? And, uh, uh, of course, they worked out a deal. And within a, a year after playing at the forum, he said, hey, uh, can I talk to you about uh, a major purchase, <laughs> which would be the, uh, the Lakers, Kings, and, and the forum itself. That's, that's very interesting. So, in essence, the, this whole L.A. Strings uh, experience, right, not only was him falling in love with the sport or at least the league and, and, and all of that, uh, but also his introduction. So I guess I didn't even realize that that first season of the team, you guys were in the Memorial uh, in the L.A. sports arena. Yeah. And, and Johnny Carson was our host for the games. No kidding. All right. So. Yeah. All right. So that. All right. So what. what um, but obviously that that all came to a crashing halt five years into the into the experiment. I, I we just did an episode a, a couple of weeks ago with with. Uh, uh, a documentarian and book uh, writer, the, both of which are soon to come out, Stephen Blush, um, uh, on the history of the World Team t Tennis uh, uh, thing. And it's interesting because, uh, and here's a great case in point, right? It, it is, was so seminal to a bunch of other things. Like, you know, if but for World Team Tennis, you wouldn't have some of these other, other things, including the legacy of Billie Jean King and all that stuff. Um, but yet there's so little written about it, so very little sort of discovered uh, about it. And yet here we are talking about perhaps the, I don't know, the foundational elements of what, as we get into, became a, a gigantic L.A.-based sports empire uh, through your dad's efforts and love of this team and league. Oh, not only that, I mean, the influence that my father had in in American sports in general, where, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, 
you know, prior to 1979, uh, you know, I mean, sports in America was was great. Everybody loved it, but uh, it was time to go into the next level. Uh, and uh, you know, for so many years, players were underpaid. Uh, coaches were certainly underpaid. Uh, and, uh, uh, tickets were still cheap, <laughs> uh, but, uh, as television grew and, uh, the, the thirst for American sports on television, uh, grew, uh, my father was right there and it was his education from world team tennis that gave him the education. Once he took over the Lakers and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, wonderfully, he he had Magic Johnson to start out with, uh, and uh, he changed the face of sports. Uh, after that first year, we won the first championship after uh, in 1979, 1980, and uh, you know, he he came into the league meetings now as a first year championship owner. Uh, and if that didn't give him the confidence to go into the league meetings and start demanding uh, changes, uh, whether it was in, in rules, whether it was in finance, whether uh, it was just in the, in the marketing itself, uh, he had a, a very loud voice and he was very well educated and schooled from WTT, I'm telling you that it was it was an incredible education for him. Uh, and I mean, he already had the intelligence and the smarts uh, to do this. But once he got through the education of WTT and went right into uh, the NBA and also the NHL, he said it was a little more difficult to uh, <laughs> Uh, to make uh, uh, changes in the NHL, um, he said, "Boy, those owners are really tough." <laughs> you know, but well, your, your your head must have been spinning, right? Because uh, I I know that the the strings were the last ever champions of WTT in 1978, and there's a, a great photo that we've used a couple of times on our website of your dad uh, holding uh, what it looks like the banner that was, I guess, either going to be raised or I don't know where it was going to be raised because it was the end of the season or whatever. I think. Chris Everett and Elena Stassi were sort of lovingly looking on to him, the patron saint, I guess. But I, I uh, so your head must have been spinning. I wonder if if your dad at the time knew that that was going to be the end of world team tennis in uh, any of that stuff. And then I guess, too, another sort of part of the question I would get to would be, it feels to me that not only was sort of the Lakers in that conversation, but he was pragmatically looking at the forum maybe perhaps almost first and foremost as maybe the crown jewel of this potential transaction with Jack and cook. Yeah. Well, once he got into, <laughs> once he got his foot into the forum with the strings, uh, it was all over. Uh, he and Jack and cook, uh, really hit it off very well. Uh, they were, uh, they became very close buddies at a very uh, short amount of time. And I think that's why Jack, came to him first and said, hey, what, do, you want, do you want to do this? Uh, but uh, again, you know, throughout that whole period of time, my dad was trying to figure out 
how American sports was best served uh, for the fans and best served for the athletes. And he started developing uh, strategies to, you know, because he, he, he knew players who uh, uh, had money at one time and, and just blew it all because they didn't know what to do with their money. No, they didn't know how to invest it. And I'm telling you, uh, uh, there were probably a hundred tennis players that would ask my dad, hey, what what investment should I do? Uh, What how you know, how could I make more money? How can I do this? How can I do that? He he became the (laughs) the father to (laughs) so many players uh, because you, at that time you couldn't trust agents, you couldn't trust a lot of people, uh, you couldn't. Sometimes players couldn't trust their own family, and uh, a lot of them uh, squandered their money or just lost it. Uh, you know, uh, nobody was protected by injury, and uh, he was very instrumental in making sure that players in all uh, sports uh, did the right thing with their money. And uh, he would actually talk to, um, uh, (laughs) I hope I don't get in trouble here, but uh, he would actually talk to um, uh, USC football players on, you know, hey, should when I go pro, what should I ask for? (laughs) You know, uh, you know, should I... uh, uh, you know what, what? What should I do? What what agent should I have? What uh, he he was just a go-to person uh, for so many athletes, uh, and especially obviously in tennis. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that that Jimmy Connors even came into the league at that time was because my dad told him, "Hey, you know you can make a lot of money in the WTT if you do it right, and I can show you how to do it." Uh, you know, uh, it, it was just amazing what uh, uh, what my dad figured out as far as uh, getting the players on his side. And of course, one of the first things that he did uh, when he bought the Lakers was he said, "Hey, <laughs> Irvin Johnson, you're 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 pretty good. Uh, you're going to be uh, maybe the greatest of all time." How about if I pay you a million dollars a year to play <laughs> for the Lakers? And of course, that sent shockwaves throughout American sports. Uh, every owner in every league <laughs> probably tried to get a hold of him and say, hey, you know what? You're going to ruin sports if you do something like that. <laughs> and um, my dad said, oh, no, it's, you know, it." It's uh, it's deferred payments and it's part of an investment and it's this and that. It actually doesn't cost that much money to pay uh, to pay Irvin a million dollars if you do it right. <laughs> and they said, yeah, but we can't do that. So you're going to get you're going to have all the players. You're going to you're going to be able to take any player you want. Um, let's let's start putting caps on. <laughs> Uh, on on player salaries, uh, let's start. 
you know, making rules and regulations against people like Jerry Buss who are going to ruin American sports. So, you know, he in 1980-81, he was really, uh, really slammed by a lot of uh, other owners, not just in the NBA, not just in the NHL, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, the people that he met in, in, in NFL, uh, they all said, hey, you know what, you you got to be very careful, Jerry, because you're going to you're going to start a precedent that is going to ruin sports. Uh, we can't afford to pl- pay these players that much money. And, uh, you know, he just kept saying, hey, yes, you can. Yes, you can with the right investment and the right defer- <laughs> deferred payments and and with this and with that. Uh, so it, it became really a nightmare for everybody. Uh, uh, you know, he he didn't know if he was making a mistake. He didn't know if he was doing the right thing. Uh, all we knew is that, uh, you know, Magic Johnson was now the wealthiest player in America making a million bucks a year. Well, but five championships and the Showtime era during the 1980s, right? That probably didn't hurt, right, in terms of uh, one's clout on that issue, right? It was all part of the publicity. It, it was all part of Showtime. It was... It was, wow, look at this guy after his first year winning a championship. Now he's instrumental in, in NBA politics. Uh, and, uh, uh, and now they're making rules and regulations uh, to stop or to slow down Jerry Buss and what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, this guy could win championships for the next 20 years if, if we let him. <laughs> so they had to they had to put in the rules and regulations to stop people like Jerry Buss. So, OK, so the, but but I, I also give uh, my sense, though, too, and this uh, certainly harkens back to some of our conversations with uh, Ronnie Reinstein in a, a couple of episodes ago, a number of episodes ago, that that uh, there is also some other economics sort of at play, perhaps that your dad is sort of. Uh, smartly sort of uh, recognizing maybe a little ahead of uh, the uh, the hoi polloi, shall we say, in the 80s. And and I suspect, too, given what you suggested earlier about what your eye was on when you're going to these games and not, uh, you know, dating star t- tennis players and the like, uh, you know, the, the business of it, right? And I think one of those things, or I don't think, I'm sure certain is, is the forum itself, right? You guys... And I, I harken back to, to the conversation with Ronnie. You guys were all part of sort of, uh, I, I, I don't know, I will say almost maybe kind of pioneering some of what is today sort of uh, just, uh, you know, generally understood as as uh, key revenue streams, right? Like, so, for example, we'll get into the lasers in a minute, but I, I look at some of the old L.A. lasers games on the old USA cable network and uh, Prime Sports and some of these other other things. And if I'm not mistaken which I certainly could be. It looks like the forum for those games, uh, when you're not staring at the empty seats, but I digress, uh, had actually some of the first sort of uh, banners from corporate sponsors that I even remember on on the Dasher boards, right? I, 1984, I don't think that was a common practice in the MISL for sure, and maybe in, in some of the other indoor sports uh, as well. Yeah, well, see, that's... Uh... You know, 
when you get to the point where, uh, as we came into the forum Lakers and Kings, uh, the forum was the one that was, well, <laughs> the Kings and the forum were losing money. Uh, and uh, so my dad had to, to really try to think, you know, in order to keep the forum moving, we need more events. And now he became, uh, you know, this manager of the forum and try to figure out how to make more money with the forum. And uh, we needed more events. And, and so immediately, uh, here I am in college at USC, and he said, hey, I, I, I need you to start promoting concerts uh, and special events. And so that's what, uh, uh, what I did. I, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, I, I quit school and I came to work as, as a concert promoter at the forum. And uh, um, I'm not sure that I regret that, but uh, it started out okay until uh, the local promoters in Los Angeles decided to uh, boycott the forum uh, because we had an in-house special events office now <laughs> department. So uh, so immediately, <laughs> my dad said, uh, I, I think we did maybe three or four concerts uh, and uh, I, I think a, a rodeo or something like that. And uh, he, he came in and he said, well, Johnny, you're <laughs> we, we basically have to dissolve your department because we're going to get boycotted and I can't afford to lose... Uh, the acts that they bring, you know, at that time, uh, a Led Zeppelin or or uh, Rolling Stones or anything like that, and he couldn't afford to lose those people. So, uh, so again, I I got uh, kicked out, and I moved back into, uh, or I moved to Las Vegas to do to take over his real estate operation up there, uh, which was uh, you know quite extensive and. Uh, that was that was now uh, I'm gone for two or three years uh, doing real estate. Uh, but he, again, he still needed more events at the forum. Uh, and that's when uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Earl Foreman uh, came to him and said, hey, look, uh, uh, you know, we, we really need a Los Angeles franchise and uh, uh, we'd love to play in the forum. Would you like to buy a team? <laughs> you know, all right. Well, let's, let, let's let's talk about that, right? So the major indoor soccer league, right at that time. So this is, you know, the MISL, as we've talked about in a number of other episodes, right, was uh, quite a phenomenon, and and really started to gain some steam as the 1980s kind of started. Uh, it got its first couple of years in the late 70s. Uh, the outdoor NASL was starting to sag uh, and, and collapse under its own sort of uh, uh, profligate spending, weight, uh, star players, and uh, lack of television and all that kind of stuff. And in various pockets, St. Louis, for example, a, a, just a frenzy, right? To have sellout after sellout. It was in, in a bunch of markets quite a phenomenon. And uh, it was sort of everything sort of all rolled up into one, right? It was... It was soccer, which was skill, right? It was fast-paced, which was, you know, exciting. It was spectacle, for sure. The Lywicki brothers and others bringing, you know, exploding 
disco balls or whatever they were, you know, the pregame hype and all that kind of stuff. Um, how does the MISL get onto your dad's radar and how does Earl, I mean, is this just another case of, Hey, Jerry Buss is doing some interesting stuff out there. I'm going to, you know, like, like, uh, 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 Dennis Murphy did a decade earlier. I'm just going to go make a pilgrimage and, and make my case. Uh, I got to think that, that your dad was, uh, being approached by just about every new league and, and concept in sports, uh, and related at that time, besides just the MISL. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I remember a case where, uh, a group of people came in uh, because they wanted to do uh, uh, indoor ski jumping. And uh, uh, they wanted, you know, the, my dad, they wanted the forum and they wanted, you know, they couldn't afford the forum. So they were trying to talk my dad into giving uh, free rent so that they could come in and do this uh, ski jumping championship. And now, uh, Yes, everybody in America, and maybe a few outside of America, uh, came to him hoping that uh, uh, they could bring their event uh, to him and he would be, have something to do with it. He was now on, uh, he was the one of the more famous young owners uh, and, and players in, in American sports. And, uh, of course, everybody was coming to him uh, wanting to do events in the forum and wanting him to uh, partake in it financially. So, uh, of course, he turned down uh, tons of people. Now, why he went with MISL, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but, uh, again, it, it seemed like a, a fun sport for him. Uh, it gave him uh, 12 to 20 uh, possible dates in the forum. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the first person he, he called was, Hey Johnny, how you doing in the real estate up in Las Vegas? Do you want to come back to Los Angeles and, uh, and run an indoor soccer, uh, franchise? All right. So walk, walk me through that a little bit then. So like, uh, what, what, how do you receive that phone call or that conversation? And, and then what do you, you know, <laughs> Tell me, tell me, tell me how it goes from there, and and what you decide to do to to get involved. Because, uh, did you, were you a soccer well, fan? Did you know anything about the MISL? Did you care? You know what? Yeah. Well, it, it was really interesting because uh, the whole real estate operation in Las Vegas uh, was an investment, and it was time to get rid of that investment. Uh, and he was worried because I had. Uh, you know, I mean, his son was taking care of all this real estate and now he's already kicked me out of <laughs> the forum and, and, and uh, concerts. Uh, and now he's getting ready to kick me out of real estate in Las Vegas. So he, he, I think he felt like, gosh, you know what? This might be something that Johnny would really enjoy doing. So I did get the call. Uh, he said, let's meet down in Palm Springs and uh, let's see what, what we can do. Uh, so we met at his, uh, his hotel in Palm Springs, the Ocotillo Lodge. And, uh, of course, 
my good buddy, Ronnie Weinstein, was there with me driving down there going, what do you think this is all about? And uh, so we met with him and uh, he said, well, uh, here's, and he explained the whole thing uh, as Earl explained it to him. And uh, he said, the first thing you need to do is you need to fly to St. Louis and watch the steamers game. So Ronnie and I flew to St. Louis and watched the game. And, uh, you know, now we, we understand what, what this is all about. Uh, but when we watched the game, we became immediate fans of the game. I mean, immediate fans of the game. It was fast paced. It was as, as, uh, as exciting as basketball, uh, it was kind of, it had the hockey flavor to it. Uh, and, and certainly it, it, it was soccer. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> would, would dispute that, but it was soccer. And uh, so when we got back, uh, you know, I, I said, Dad, this is an amazing sport. This is unbelievable. It's, it, it is so much fun. <laughs> uh, and, and we were now talking as fans, which I, I kind of hate to do that because, as I said earlier, I was really rarely involved in the games as, they, as I watched them, whether it was USC football or, was, or even the Lakers. Um, you know, the, sports was never my big thing. Um, uh, you know, I was uh, I was in drama <laughs> at USC. Uh, I was a musician. I had a band, uh, so I was more s situated for the the concerts. Uh, but I became a fan of the MISL, and uh, you know, I said, "Dad, you got to do this. We got to do this." Uh, and he said, "Well, we're only going to do it if we can keep expenses down." Uh, you have uh, <laughs> you have about uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and a half million of that has to be for the players, and then you can do the you can use the rest for your staff and marketing. And I, I thought, God, seven hundred fifty thousand. Can we do that? And I said, Well, what are what are the other teams spending on their uh, their player uh, budget. And he said, well, they're usually around anywhere from 500,000 to a million dollars. And I said, well, okay, then we can fill the team that, that, uh, that would be decent. So uh, uh, as it turns out, now that we went ahead bought the team, we're, we're now involved. We're uh, we've got, probably less than a year to put it all together. Uh, you know, we had to find a coach. <laughs> uh, Ronnie became the general manager. Uh, and we started trying to put together a team that would fit uh, for under a million dollars. And I mean, under uh, half a million dollars. As, as it turns out, I think we were the only team under a million dollars uh, uh, our first year there. I don't think any team in the MISL 
had a player budget of under a million dollars. And here we only had a half million dollars to spend. Of course, maybe that was the reason we only won. <laughs> what uh, what was our record? Uh, uh, eight, 12, eight and eight, 40 that first year. Eight and 40. Okay. So, uh, I mean, it was, it was hard to swallow. It was tough. Uh, but you know what? You, you can't quit. You've got to keep going. Uh, you try to ask for more money for your players, but uh, we uh, we really didn't get that. <laughs> you know, we were still under budget. Um, but thank God that we had a great coach in Peter Wall, who uh, who he was going to do the best he could with whatever he had, and uh, we trusted him. I think he fielded actually a very competitive team the first year, even though we had lost those games. Many of those games were within a, in one goal. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just. No, you, you, there, there were some, there were some great names in, in soccer history around that time. I mean, uh, Clyde Best was, was on that team, a former uh, guest yes. on our show. Uh, oh. Don Tobin, uh, certainly. Um, <laughs> You know, um, uh, yeah. Polly Gar- Garcia, right, who played in the uh, old American Soccer League and you know, lit it up. I think he was your uh, your leading scorer that year, right? So, but I, I guess I so yeah, I mean you're you're uh, see clearly I'm I'm touching on a few names that that, that you remember. Maybe we should get into that. But I I, I, I guess I'm I, I'm really curious, and I remember watching. I think it was your first ever game on the USA Network. Um, Late night, uh, I think it was against the Arrows, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the um, I, I guess I wonder going into this if you thought that fielding a competitive team on that somewhat limited budget was going to be relatively easy, or you know, at what point did you sort of realize, wait a minute, this 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 may be a little bit more challenging talent wise uh, to sort of keep up uh, with this grueling schedule and and this not necessarily so new league because this is what three or four years into the league's existence at that point. Yeah. Well, you got to remember that. uh, I mean, I have the only experience that I have is sitting next to my father throughout WTT sitting next to my father in the early stages of, of the uh, NBA and NHL. Uh, And, you know, now here I am, uh, you know, running my own franchise and trying to do the best I can with the limited budget that we had, uh, and playing in Los Angeles, which is a difficult market to begin with. I mean, it was, uh, it was as if somebody said, uh, Hey John, why don't you just, uh, tie yourself onto these uh, railroad tracks and wait for a train to come? Um, it was very difficult emotionally. I mean, you know, 20, what was I, 25 years old or something at that time. Um, and you know, it was, it was a lot to take on. Uh, you know, we were fighting the traditionalists, uh, and, uh, you know, who didn't like indoor soccer. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was an incredible period of time that first year. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was disappointed that, that, uh, that we, 
only won eight games, but uh, but more importantly, I couldn't understand why I became a fan of this game uh, so deeply when I'm I haven't been a fan of any sports. So you know, now all of a sudden I had to play uh, two roles. I had to play the fan and I had to play the owner, and it was very very difficult. So. Uh, uh, you know, at, at that time, there was another part of this equation that not only did the forum need more events, but my dad had started Prime Ticket and he was thinking, gosh, you know, maybe we could get some, uh, you know, some games, uh, some uh, MISL games on onto Prime Ticket. You know, that was always uh, in the back of his mind uh, that you know, he would have program. So, uh, you know, he just said, Hey, John, just stick with it. Don't worry about it. You know, you'll do better next year. You know, this is your first year. Let it go. Just, you know, just try to do better, you know, try to find a, a more players or whatever. And, uh, I, I'm telling you, <laughs> it, it was to the point where after that first year I grew up so quickly and now getting ready to start our second year uh, my dad basically said you know what this is now your team I don't want to hear about it you know <laughs> if you have problems with with anybody you deal with it yourself uh, I have too much to do so uh, you know, when I told Ronnie Weinstein that, hey, uh, we have my dad's support, but we have zero minutes to talk to him. Uh, and so all of a sudden, my mentor was gone. Uh, now I, I was completely on my own running the lasers. Uh, without cooperation from the forum, uh, you know, the, for some reason, uh, the forum became, it, it was always the Lakers and Kings building. And, you know, here's the Lasers trying to squeak in and trying to get uh, a few promotions, trying to get Chick Hearn to talk about it on a Laker game or uh, trying to, uh, uh, and I remember one time I did come out on the NHL, NHL ice during a Kings game and try to tell everybody, hey, come out to uh, the Lasers game, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and hearing laughter in the in the in the crowd. And I mean, it, it was it was really tough. It was it was just a, a really tough two years. But uh, that's when I could be a fan and say, hey, well, I'm not giving up because I love this game. You know, uh, this is this is too much fun. I I really thought that the. Uh, that the indoor soccer game was going to be uh, big time, maybe not as big as the NHL, but um, but it was going to be right behind uh, on their heels. And of course, it was it, it costs a lot less to to run a franchise in in MISL. So you know, over time, ticket sales would go up, uh, uh, and our revenue would go up, and we. Uh, the league would get stronger. Uh, we really had hopes, uh, high hopes. And we stuck it out uh, uh, until 
truthfully, I after the third season, uh, uh, I basically said to my brother, you know what, I think you need to take over the team because uh, I just cannot cooperate uh, or get cooperation from uh, from people that worked at the forum. Uh, it, it was so difficult. And, and, you know, I mean, we started with uh, our first season, I think we started with 12 Monday nights. Um, and and <laughs> it was like, well, <laughs> can we get at least, <laughs> you know, some weekend dates? Oh, well, those are reserved for concerts and, uh, you know, obviously the, um, uh, whatever else was bigger than, than the MISL. But as it turns out, those were only reserved dates. So as our season went on and all of a sudden there was empty Friday nights and Saturday nights at the forum, I was like, hey, you know, this is crazy to reserve seats or reserve dates for concerts or whatever, and then the the concerts fell through, that Saturday night would go empty. And it was it, it was just really disappointing and very hard to uh, to accept that for the first three years of our existence, you know, uh, we just didn't get the dates that we needed in order to to boost ticket sales. All right, what's this? NordVPN. Fantastic. Uh, friends, you know, uh, the uh, the world of the Internet gets uh, crazier and uh, and less secure by the day, it seems. And privacy is a huge issue uh, when you're traveling, uh, perhaps even using Wi-Fi, right? You never quite really feel comfortable in knowing that, you know, your, uh, your Internet c- connection is secure, uh, that you're not being tracked, uh, that your data, frankly, is not being uh, accessed and uh, uh, unwittingly uh, pilfered and used for other... Uh, other purposes that uh, you don't want it to be used for. And that's where virtual private networks, he says, comes in very handy. And the best out there of late uh, is our friends at NordVPN. That's N-O-R-D V-P-N. Let's say you want to, let's you're traveling and um, you want to access a streaming service when you're uh, in another country. Uh, this is a great uh, way, a virtual private network, to to access those, uh, those services without sort of being uh, bumped out because uh, your computer device thinks that uh, you're living in another country. If you use Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi at that, on a regular basis, you know how dicey that proposition can be. It's convenient, sure, but when you're sitting in a, a lobby of a hotel or a Starbucks, you know, uh, y- you think it's secure, but uh, are you really sure? Encrypting your data, very important when you're sending a, 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 an important file, let's say a tax form to your accountant. Um and uh, file sharing, uh, you've got a, a project that uh, you're trying to share with your team uh, and, uh, you know, even in a Slack environment or whatever, those things can get uh, easily uh, sidetracked and or uh, intercepted without the benefits of a virtual private network. And again, NordVPN is the best that I found out there. And I can't uh, tell you how not only important a VPN is, but how probably the best that I've seen uh, to date is our friends at NordVPN. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you about all this unless we had a special offer for it. Of course we do. Uh, it's a special holiday deal for every purchase of a two-year plan, and it's relatively 
uh, well-priced, I, I think you'll find it uh, itself a good deal. You'll get four additional months for free when you go to nordvpn.com slash goodseats. That's Nord, N-O-R-D, V as in Victor, P-N.com, nordvpn.com slash goodseats. And don't forget to use the coupon code goodseats at checkout. And again, you're going to get four additional months for free when you purchase a two-year plan. NordVPN, it's the best that I found out there in the worlds of virtual private networks. Check them out, NordVPN. Thank you for your support of the show. And now back to said show. We're, you know, incrementally growing this thing, right? So, you know, the first year was the the the, the, the just the miserable record and 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 barely, I don't think even four thousand paid attendance. But you know, you you did make strides. I mean, the la- the next two seasons, right? You were you but you went five hundred. I mean, twenty four and twenty four. Each of those seasons made the playoffs in each of those, and the attendance by the uh, end of that third season was actually over five thousand uh, a game, right? Which Again, relative, right? I mean, obviously, it was near the lower end of the MISL's uh, attendance uh, roster. However, you know, a tough market, right? And I guess besides the dates and the third or maybe you're even describing fourth class citizenship when it (laughs) comes to dates and and, and that kind of stuff, right? I, I know this from personal experience being a not even one season long season ticket holder of the old New Jersey Rockets in the 1982, 83 season when I was a kid. Um, the Meadowlands Arena, the, then wow. called, before it was called Brendan Byrne Arena, or maybe it was called those oh, right. two, uh-huh. right? That, that uh, you know, uh, brand new arena. But then, yeah, it was the Nets and, and, the, and, the, and the Devils and, and, you know, and then these Monday night games, right, for, for, for these, these Rockets. I guess the question in there is, in those three years before you sort of handed over the reins, um, it's clear that you didn't have a lot of money to work with. I, I would assume in terms of marketing, right? And I guess that's the question because I, I have to think that there were a number of synergies or at least perceived synergies, at least in the in the back office, so to speak, right? The fact that you can get on, on the ice to may, at least make a spiel, right? That doesn't, you know, you can't do that without sort of having – you know, winking and nodding of the ownership and, and, and the, and the, yeah, there's gotta be some things. There's some stationary or whatever, right? The ability to get on prime ticket, that that's not something you can just sort of, so there are some incumbent advantages there being in the building, you know, of showtime and all that. But um, I guess I'm, I'm just really curious is how, how you were marketing the product because you were a fan, right? It seems like the go-to for uh, Ed Tepper and, 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 uh, uh, at Al was to take everybody to St. Louis, right? Because that's how, that's how people fell in love with the game. <laughs> yeah. But not every place was St. Louis. Um, how do you market this? Because it, it it's at once it's a sport, uh, but it's also uh, it's a spectacle, right? It's entertainment, right? With the with the music and the, and the introductions, which were quite in the vanguard at that point. Um, uh, you're in the middle of the one of the biggest, if not the most attractive entertainment markets in the country, which itself has got to be a challenge. How do you market this thing? Did it change? Did it evolve? And what do you say to people as you're marketing this thing? Well, you know, again, I tried to go to my dad with, uh, with help, asking for help. 
And he basically said, there's not much I can do, you know, uh, you just just play it out. And uh, if you need something, you know, let me know. So I I said, well, first of all, I would like a bigger budget. Uh, <laughs> it'd be nice to have more money. Um, and he gave us a little bit more money, but certainly not what I asked for. Uh, and uh, he said, when, once your ticket sales get up, uh, you know, and and there's some strength in the league, then maybe we can uh, give you some more money. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you need something from the Lakers, the Kings, let me know. And so I asked, well, can we get some commercial spots on, on Laker broadcasts and, and Kings broadcasts? He said, well, uh, I'll work on that. And uh, yes, we did get a few, not, not many, but we did get a few. We did get some mentions. Uh, you know, but Ronnie and I would sit there at, at midnight and say, what the hell are we going to do? Uh, and I said, there's only one thing to do. We're going to have to be politicians and knock on doors. And Ronnie and I used to <laughs> go out on weekends uh, to every park in Los Angeles and try to... Uh, promote our, our sport. We'd say, hey, have you been to uh, a Lasers game yet? It's really exciting. It's really fun. You know, you, you got to come on out. And we were basically just hawking uh, <laughs> and, and barking our, our way to a, a, a better attendance. Uh, we really worked hard. I mean, this is how I learned about guerrilla marketing and grassroots marketing. Uh, we really did our our share of of, uh, of <laughs> running around Los Angeles trying to talk people into coming to the games. But the 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 most interesting thing was my dad had just bought this famous house called Pickfair. Uh, it was uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, uh, you know, huge silent film stars of of Hollywood. A uh, very famous home. And I said, uh, Dad, there's one more thing I'd like to do. Can I use your house? <laughs> he said, for what? I said, you know those investment groups that you used to do with real estate? Uh, I'm going to invite 50 people a night to come to Pick Fair, and I'll give them a tour if they buy a season seat. <laughs> uh, and... You know, basically, we just invited as many people as we could uh, fit in there, uh, which was about 50 people a night and as many days as I could possibly get until my dad said, uh, hey, Johnny, you got to remember that I still live here. You can't make this into a, <laughs> a conference room. You know, <laughs> uh, I do live here. So, uh, uh, but I think we, uh, we probably did a, a dozen or more uh, of these uh, <laughs> pick fair tours. And we actually ended up selling, uh, selling these people. Gosh, we probably got uh, a good 300 uh, season seats off of this little promotion thing. Uh, but as these people actually came to the games, you could tell that they were bringing their friends. We because we would give uh, each season seat holder 
some free tickets to the first uh, two or three games or something like that to bring their friends. And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, by the third year, we weren't doing too badly. Uh, but it was still very frustrating that we weren't uh, uh, we weren't drawing you know ten thousand people a game. I, I uh, again maybe it was wrong to go to the uh, uh, the, the comets games or the uh, steamers games or something like that where they were had sold out crowds each and every time. Uh, you know, it was just a difficult sell in Los Angeles. It really was and. Without the cooperation from uh, the the management of the forum, which <laughs> I somewhat include my father to that, um, uh, you know, it was it was difficult, and it, and it seemed like I was up against a brick wall that we were never going to break through and and make this what I dreamed of making it, and that was a. Uh, uh, you know, a fabulous sport uh, that people, that families could come to. Um, and it, it just didn't work out. For me, uh, it was too much pressure. I was probably too young at that time, uh, probably a little too inexperienced. But at the same time, I had probably better education than, than most other people in the league. So, uh, you know, it was, it was like Ronnie and I used to talk about, hey, maybe your dad would let us move to some obscure city where we would sell out every night. Okay, <laughs> so let, let's, yeah, let's get into that for a second. Um, and I don't want to go, you know, uh, uh, drag it on too f- much further because obviously, you know, you were really only kind of involved with those first three years, uh, sort of at the at the levers here. But I mean, it's clear that you're pulling all the all the out all the stops, right? I mean, the celebrities, right? We talked with uh, Ronnie about Neil Diamond and Ricky Schroeder and, and yeah, the laser girls who are basically, you know, uh, essentially the Laker girls, uh, you know, uh, in a new costume, right? They're, clearly, you're pulling all of the stops, all the synergies that you can by hook or by crook. But I, I th- that's actually a very telling comment, though, right? See, it, the I guess you fi- figured out fairly early on that the league needed Los Angeles perhaps more than Los Angeles needed the MISL. Yes. Right. And that and, and the smaller markets, right, seem to be where most of that the the fervor really was, maybe because there was only one other team. Like in St. Louis, there was only the Blues, right? There was no basketball team. Um you know, in a Kansas City, kind of the same situation. I mean, the Kings had left, and and it was just them, and there was no hockey team. So Kansas City, you know, it, it it was off the charts, right? But in a New York metropolitan area, the Arrows, despite their on-field success for those first four seasons, right, were kind of, you know, not quite a draw on Long Island. And and then when you add in the Rockets in the New York New, New metropolitan area, they drew flies too, right? And and I I guess the question is. Were you onto something there? Was that actually a real idea to perhaps move the lasers to a smaller market and maybe kind of maybe fall more into where the MISSL success was really happening? Yes. And uh, I did talk to my father about that. And, uh, you know, I said, can we at least move down to Anaheim or something like that? uh, and he said, that's a really great idea, but that doesn't solve our problem at the forum. We need those dates for our subscription-based 
uh, ticket sales, which they had the a thing called the Senate seats uh, at the forum, where uh, it was good for all events at the forum. And since we brought in, uh, uh, geez, whatever it was, uh, 25 dates or uh, or more, 20 some some odd dates, uh, he really needed those for uh, for the forum. So he said, uh, no, you can't move. <laughs> You're, you got to stay here. And I said, oh, God, I don't know. I mean, we need better cooperation from the uh, from from everybody at the forum. We need, you know, please help us. We need more. <laughs> if, if, if we could get more help, if we could uh, utilize the I mean, uh, it, it was nice. And you you mentioned this before. It was nice to be able to. Uh, to to have Chick Hearn talk about the laser uh, the lasers on the Laker games, um, and uh, you know, but it wasn't enough. You know, we needed more, and so I mean, I came up with uh, crazy ideas like uh, if you if you come to twelve uh, indoor soccer games, you can have a free ticket to a round trip ticket to Hawaii. Uh, you know, I mean, it was all the the crazy promotions. Uh, you know, we 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 were going to do fifty cent uh, hot dog night, but of course, we didn't own the concessions at the forum. At that time, it was under contract to serve ovation or something like that. Uh, and uh, they said, no, of course not. We're not <laughs> we're not going to do fifty fifty cent hot dog night unless you pay for it. I said, well, how much would it cost? Well, each hot dog is basically three dollars. So if you pay us two two dollars and fifty cents, we'll let <laughs> we'll let you buy as many fifty cent hot dogs as you want. And it was like, oh my god, I, you know, the cooperation just wasn't there. Yeah, it seems seems like you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, right? You can't you don't have the the luxury of being able to find another venue that could be more. Uh, accommodating, I guess, in terms of uh, a fan base or, or or growing the market, and yet you know you've got uh, the the beast to fill uh, with the dates and and the key products sort of humming both on the television side and the arena side. So, um, so okay, so how does how does your involvement end then? How does uh, how does Jim come into the mix? Uh, how and why does he want it then? Given all those frustrations, um, does he do that willingly? Is it kind of a uh, engineered uh, uh, transfer, if you will. Well, it was it was more uh, that I I couldn't take it anymore, kind of thing. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. Uh, and, and so I went into my brother's office and I just said, I can't take this. Uh, how would you like to run the the lasers? Because I I'm 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 gonna retire uh, resign. And he said, absolutely, I'd love to do it. And uh, I said, okay, then it's yours. Go talk to dad, <laughs> you know. And uh, he, he certainly went to talk to my dad. My dad called me and he said, I am so sorry that I put you through such hell for, <laughs> for three years. That, uh, um, but it is what it is, you know. Uh, okay, let's give Jimmy a shot. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think my sister Jeannie was not too thrilled about that. Uh, I think she felt like she was not even considered. Uh, so uh, I, I think at that time, 
she started running the uh, the Blades uh, roller hockey team. Yes, and we're looking she, forward she, hopefully to having a conversation with her about that in particular, for sure. Yeah, and she enjoyed that. And, I mean, that was a good sport. That was fun. Uh, you know, I don't think it was nearly as, as fun as indoor soccer, but uh, but I, I, I think Jeannie uh, still to this day holds a little bit of resentment that uh, uh, that I didn't have the right to tell my brother that he could take it over. Uh, and uh, so when when Jeannie found out that that Jimmy did talk to to my father or to our father, uh, that she was she was pretty upset about it, and uh, uh, I don't think she's ever forgiven me or my father for that uh, without uh, discussing with her first. But uh, heck, she already had her own team in in the Blades, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that that certainly started a uh, a family rift, which uh, we've uh, we've heard about in the media. You know, uh, where uh, you know it was difficult for the bus family to get along, and these were parts of the elements that that created that. So, <laughs> so lo and behold, now my little sister she wants something to do. So uh, my dad gave her uh, the circus and rodeo uh, <laughs> to to promote, and uh, 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 you know Jimmy now had the lasers, Jeannie had the blades, and uh, I went back to uh, uh, to my musical band and started playing around uh, honky tonks <laughs> in uh, Southern California. All right. So, so let's 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 bury the MISL for a second. Then I want to get into the last couple of minutes we got remaining as to the the reincarnation of your sports career. Um, when did you know the MISL was not necessarily going to make it in the long run? Well, you you, you could tell. I mean, the, the, the writing was on the wall. Uh, you, just because St. Louis before did you well, left, do you think, or or not until after you left, and you could sort of look at it from a maybe a, at a distance. Well, I could tell going to the league meetings uh, that uh, the way the owners, uh, it seemed like everybody was against everybody else. Uh, I don't know if that was because they were not uh, uh, well understood how leagues work uh, and uh, or what, but uh, it was constant fighting amongst the owners, uh, battles. Uh, I think that... Uh, uh, most of the owners were not uh, as wealthy as they needed to be to uh, sustain uh, their teams. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just became increasingly difficult to run a team no matter what city you were in. So, uh, you know, for me, I, I went through all the league meetings in World Team Tennis, so I, I know what... Uh, <laughs> what goes on in league meetings. And uh, I have to tell you that the uh, MISL league meetings were probably some of the worst run uh, meetings that I've ever been to uh, up until that time. I know I was young, but, I, uh, but now I've been in NBA meetings, league meetings. Uh, I've never been to an NHL meeting, uh, but I went to almost 
all of the WTT meetings uh, and sat next to my father throughout the whole thing. Uh, the MISL meetings were, uh, it was all a, a, about ego and my team's better than yours, uh, you know, and all I could say, hey, for the good of the league, you need to help some of these other teams, including myself. Uh, you can't sustain a league just with two or three teams that are doing well. Um, and so for the good of the league, I proposed this. <laughs> and I was, you know, again, I was maybe 25, 27 years old at that time. And I was this little youngster, uh, you know, creating uh, this bad boy image of talking back to these other owners who, you know, were in their 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, uh, some of them were young, uh, the Lywickies. I don't know if they really actually own the franchises, but uh, they were represented there. And, uh, uh, you know, again, actually, I, I enjoyed the Lywickies because they they brought the youthful uh uh, energy and the thought of that maybe I was right that hey for the good of the league you got to help all the teams. Yeah, interesting and and yeah and there's there's a lot of other sort of dynamics sort of at play there too. Some of it sort of the sports, uh, uh, the, the the soccer's sport you know uh, uh, viability in this country as well. Uh, you know I I I guess where I'm get sort of you're really curious is to sort of hear how you bookmark or uh, bookend, I guess, that that story, because I, I got to feel that you, you know, leaving it all on the field, so to speak, that, as you did. Right. Um, and and then leaving uh, running the team, I'm sure there was a certain sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, wistfulness, I guess, and that uh, you couldn't sort of get it over the hump or make it more successful, perhaps more than you wanted it, uh, more than it wound up becoming. But I, I'm really curious as to know what you did sort of after that, and then how you got dragged back into the beginnings of the WNBA franchise in Los Angeles a decade later, because that, that's got to be a pretty interesting sort of turnabout as well. Yeah, there was, there's a story there. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I was damaged after three years with him or four years, whatever, if you count the year getting started. Um, <clears throat> You know, it was emotionally, uh, uh, like I said, it was like hit, getting hit by a train and then trying to recover from all my injuries, you know, uh, kind of lick my wounds kind of thing. And, uh, you know, watching my brother run the, <laughs> the run the franchise and just almost hanging my head because I, I really didn't appreciate a lot of what he did. Uh, after I left, uh, I thought he would do uh, at least as much as I did. Uh, he would put in as much energy and, and uh, strife <laughs> as I did. But, um, you know, he, he may not have been as well suited for running uh, that franchise at that time. Uh, I know he was ridiculed for uh, you know, his long hair and sunglasses at the league meetings. And, uh, uh, you know, poor Ronnie Weinstein had to, had to sit there with him 
and and take the abuse <laughs> from the other owners. Uh, but uh, and I, I, I if I recall, uh, there were a couple of owners that uh, did call my dad and say, hey, can you uh, can you assign somebody else to the team? Because I don't know that Jimmy's doing the right the right thing. Um, and my dad just laughed at that and said, well, once you guys do your right thing, we'll get Jimmy to do his right ah, thing. See, that's interesting. So that's an interesting dynamic because, because that certainly then became sort of the dynamic near the league's end, right? In some respects, almost it took your dad to kind of just kind of set everybody straight, you know, as the thing was flailing and said, I- I'm out. I- we're done. We've, we've tried. I- I've given you at least two of my uh, uh, my offspring to, to kind of – to, to do my bidding here to keep you afloat in this league in Los Angeles. And, you know, we've given it almost a good decade. And uh, if we're not any further along than when we started, uh, I'm out. And that's uh, that's where Ronnie then got the sort of the lesson about maybe doing it in the summer and all that kind of stuff. Right. But so where are you in all of this? But besides looking at it from afar, I, I'm thinking at that time, sports was maybe maybe just outside of your 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 you're on your wish list at that point. You kind of probably didn't want anything to do with it for that, that period of time, or maybe you kind of did. Well, well, yeah. Getting back to <laughs> this league meeting thing, uh, I was instructed by my father and I agreed with it that, uh, the first order of business for, from Los Angeles lasers is, uh, I propose that we move to summertime. <laughs> and then after that, you know, it was all silent. Okay, we're not going to move to summertime. Next, uh, you know, and the next year I'd sit at the league meetings and say, uh, Los Angeles proposes that we play in the summertime. Uh, you know, that was kind of the almost the going joke, you know, that uh, the first thing out of Johnny's mouth is going to be that we need to move the league to summertime. Um, that, uh, of course never happened. And, and I, I'm sure Jimmy was instructed to do the same thing. Um, but yeah, when it, when it was over, it was over. Uh, and I was really hurt by it because I, I was a fan of the sport. Um, and I thought that, uh, uh, gosh, this, this is really a travesty to American sports because, uh, you know, outdoor soccer is struggling. Um, you know, this was a, a, a great event. Uh, and it took, like I said, it took me a while to lick my wounds and, and get over uh, what I had just been through. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I kind of took time off uh, with my um, music and uh, I enjoyed that. So uh, I was having fun, but uh, uh, then my dad wanted to, uh, uh, get into, uh, minor league baseball. And, uh, so we started, uh, researching, uh, to, to buy into minor league baseball. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I think we, we spent a year in research and, and it just it never worked out. Uh, it just uh, it was disappointing again because I, I started to enjoy uh, the thought that we would have a, a a little baseball team, you know, outside of the forum, and we didn't have to play in the forum. 
uh, I was very excited about that. But uh, were you were you scouting I, were you scouting other sports as well? I mean, I, obviously, Jeannie and, and the RHI in the in the '90s was 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 part of the part of the mix too. But was was yeah. that was that a search well, for some other sports enterprise besides forum based indoor stuff? Well, again, it, uh, my dad was looking for events uh, for the forum. He was looking for events to uh, uh, programming for Prime Ticket. And, uh, yeah, he gave uh, – I mean, he was getting ready to listen to just about every uh, everything that came his way. Uh, in, the, in the early days, back in the early – really early 70s, uh, early 80s, uh, you know, when, when he was that, uh, that new NBA champion franchise owner, uh, forum owner, uh, you know, he was turning down a lot of events, but now that he had prime ticket and now that he had these Senate seats, uh, subscription, uh, tickets, uh, he needed more events. So, yeah, he set uh, Jeannie to, to do more research on what we could bring there. Uh, like I said, my sister Janie, uh, I'm sure he told Jimmy to look at some stuff. But uh, for me, uh, he knew that I was not interested in going back to the forum. Uh, it, was, it was just bad blood at that time. Uh, I was disappointed in, in so many people that worked at the forum that uh, I did not want to go back there. So that's why I was the one chosen to look at uh, minor league baseball uh, as a possibility. Uh, and again, that would be programming for at least prime ticket. Uh, but it just didn't pan out. And so uh, I took some uh, more years off, uh, got married during that period of time, and, uh, uh, you know, I was enjoying life, <laughs> uh, you know, attending Laker games. Uh, 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 I was playing hockey at that time. Uh, so I got to uh, practice with the Kings every once in a while. Uh, I was a goalkeeper. So uh, let me tell you, to play against the Triple Crown <laughs> in a practice session was the most thrilling uh, thing I've probably done <laughs> uh, up to that point. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it was all, you know, the family was, was, uh, was feeling better about everything. Uh, we were doing well. We were winning championships. Uh, you know, the mid-90s came along and <laughs> we kind of hit the skids with the Lakers, but... Uh, uh, but David Stern uh, had this idea and really wanted to uh, uh, get women's basketball moving uh, with uh, NBA owners. Uh, you know, the, there, there was a, a women's league playing at that time. Uh, it did, was doing okay. But David Stern really thought that... Uh, uh, that he should do this not only for uh, for the case of w women's sports, but also it might help the NBA in some way, shape, and form. Uh, again, they would play in the summertime, which my dad just 
was thrilled about. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he said, hey, Johnny, would you, do you think you'd be interested in women's basketball? And I, I, I said, I, again, Dad, I, I don't know anything about women's basketball. And he said, well, why don't you start doing your research and uh, let me know if you want to be involved in it. Uh, I started doing research. I started, I, I went to uh, some uh, UCLA and USC uh, women's basketball team uh, games. And it was good. I was actually surprised at how good some of these women were. Uh, and I went back to my dad. I said, yeah, you know, I think, I think I would be good at this. I, I, I've, I've learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> I've been very well educated and groomed for this. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, so he said, okay, it's done. I'm going to call David Stern right now. And uh, uh, the next thing I know, I get a call from David Stern. And he said, welcome aboard. And I go, oh, I guess you talked to my father. <laughs> and he said, yeah. So, uh, uh, so what, what felt different about this this time versus the MISL experience, right? Because I'm sure you you opened your eyes wide open because and, and not sort of wanting to repeat or have to go through some of that. But I, I it feels to me at least one of those things is you've got the the f full faith and credit of the NBA behind you for one. Yes. I mean, that was uh, that was most of it right there. Uh, and playing in the summertime. uh I thought was was a good choice, uh, but also, you know, they had a, a structure where uh, we basically uh, gave the player, uh, the player salary budget was a number that all teams gave to the league office, and they basically hired the, the players through the league office. Uh, our only uh, position there was to draft the players. Uh, originally, we were given uh, a certain amount of players so that we could get the league started, uh, which, of course, that's where we got Lisa Leslie from. And, uh, uh, you know, I thought, gosh, this is really good. They're, they're financially and fiscally uh, smart about this. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the mo if zero people showed up at the games, zero people, uh, our entire budget was a million bucks, you know? And so it was like, wow, you, you can't go wrong here. Uh, you know, so all we had to do was get some ticket sales, uh, uh, possibly get some uh, uh, television programming. And, uh, you know, uh, and get ourselves some uh, uh, some sponsorship, uh, which uh, going back to what you mentioned, uh, uh, my dad's uh, sponsorship department uh, was really, truly probably the best in the league uh, in, <laughs> as far as the NBA, NHL. Uh, you know, they did an exceptional job uh, with sponsorship. And uh, we were now going to be part of that, that group. And so, uh, you know, not only was I enthusiastic about how the, N the WNBA was going to be run, uh, they were going to be run by 
NBA owners who I already knew uh, knew how to run a league, uh, and also the uh, you know now we have twenty years at the forum under our belts, twenty five years under our belts, and uh, uh, and th- and everybody became. Uh, who they should have been, uh, who they could be, uh, meaning that uh, uh, the experience with the the lasers back in the 80s, those same people were now going, gosh, you know, I guess I, I should have helped the lasers a lot more. So now when Johnny comes in with the sparks, uh, let's help as much as we possibly can, because it only hurts us not to have uh, the the these minor leagues or or these uh, these other events in the forum. So uh, I can tell you that it was a lot different when I came in with the WNBA uh, than it was when I came in with the MISL. Uh, these same people had learned their own lesson that. Uh, more events only helps them also. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it was just one of those things where, you know, it was like, uh, you know, Johnny, it's, it's nice to have you back, you know. Uh, uh, and I was welcomed with open arms and, and that made me feel good. That made me feel like, this is not going to be another MISL situation. Well, I guess the, the one thing I'll just throw out there and maybe sort of around the corner here and, and a couple of championships didn't help. Uh, didn't hurt either. Right. Uh, so, you know, you had a lot of other uh, incumbent benefits, right? A, a television contract, the NBA uh, cross pollination and, uh, and all that stuff too. Right. So, but also lessons learned. And I guess this is maybe, maybe sort of the big sort of softball question to kind of, you know, put, put up a, a, a you know, put a, a guardrail on, on this is that, you know, I, I'm really, I, I would imagine a lot of other people that you came across in the MISL that have gone, there's been quite a few, right, that have gone on to uh, just, uh, you know, stunning success in professional sports, right? Uh, many of the Laiwiki brothers in particular, right, uh, for example, right? Um, but that, that league, the MISL, right, was very much in the vanguard and maybe not until fairly modern times have we kind of sort of recognized it, but the way a game is packaged and produced at the arena, right? Um, the, uh, the, 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 the concept around how to promote and make more entertaining, uh, beyond just the sport, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm wondering if, if there are some, or if you did sort of, uh, you know, unwittingly sort of pull some lessons learned, painful as they might have been in the MISL, into your WNBA career, um, uh, you know, from from what you sort of gleaned and or maybe kind of through hard knocks uh, experienced in that league. Oh, absolutely. I, I came into the WNBA first first league meeting where we got to meet everybody. Uh, I came in very confidently. Uh, I came in as somebody who's 
gone through, <laughs> like you said, the hard knocks of, of uh, uh, founding new leagues <laughs> or founding new teams. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was quite different. Uh, it felt good. Uh, like I said, I was I was very confident in what uh, uh, what we were going to going to do, um, but again, uh, immediately uh, I started you know bucking heads with uh, with David Stern, and uh, uh, you know on on several issues, uh, but uh, minor issues, but still you know. Uh, <laughs> David Stern basically is, uh, you know, I started becoming the bad boy of the WNBA. Why? Because you were you were pushing up against the the man, so to speak, or you had brazen ideas, or what? Well, I there was there were very few people uh, uh, in the league office at that time that had ever had any experience in management of a sports franchise. Uh, they might've had NBA league experience, but not franchise experience. It's so different uh, when you are uh, one of those local teams that, uh, uh, you know, you have to know your city. And when the, uh, when the WNBA was telling us what to do in Los Angeles, uh, you know, it was kind of insulting, truthfully. And so, uh, you know, again, I would, I would say, hey, look, that might work in, in Phoenix, but it's not going to work in Los Angeles. And what works in Los Angeles might not work in Phoenix. So let's, let's start the WNBA off so that we all have a a fair shot at this, so that we're all playing on a equal playing field. And uh, of course, <laughs> first order of business, uh, Cheryl Swoops gets pregnant, and they give Houston uh, the uh, Houston what was it the com uh, Comets, Comets? Yeah. yeah the Houston Comets they gave them the first draft choice. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it was like, well, (laughs) is, was that, is that fair or, or not? Yes, it's fair because Cheryl Swoops is pregnant. She may not ever play again. Okay. But what if she does play again? Does she go back to the Houston Rockets? I mean, to Houston Comets or, or does she go back into the draft? Oh no, she goes back to the to, to Houston. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. That, you know. Yeah, uh, so that, already that, that wasn't the David Stern way, right? He, Mr. Very central command and control, right? And in the NBA, right? Very very top down in that regard. Despite you know, and I can see where you know. I my guess is that you know, seeing the the fledgling ABL that the competitor league that was sort of out there as well, right? But, you know, you want to bring that sort of full force of the NBA and all the owners, uh, you're going to get the NBA, right? And that's uh, that's a little different than the franchise model that you were aware of at the MISL or, or the Dennis Murphy vision of sports, right? Which is 
the antithesis of player you know, owner managers, right? Where there's a centralized uh, kind of approach, right? Um, and that's a real chafe. And, and frankly, it, it, once again, you're in the vanguard here because you look at today's modern day or, you know, a decade or two later at the WNBA. And now there's a lot more of sort of these, call them independent, right? I think maybe half the franchises are still uh, related, if you will, to their NBA uh, siblings, right? But now there's a lot of uh, exploration and or ownership that's uh, outside of the NBA domain, right? So maybe you're on to something. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, maybe we started off on the right foot for sure. Uh, and I was very happy about that. My dad was very pleased about that. Uh, but at the same time, there were, uh, you know, a few bumps in the road that uh, that the league the league office didn't quite understand because they had never run a franchise before. Um, uh, very quickly, Val Ackerman came in as the uh, commissioner. Uh, and uh, again, this was somebody who worked in the NBA but never had uh, had experience running a, a, a local franchise. So, Or managing uh, franchise owners with their own particular market understandings and needs, right? Exactly. You know, so, I mean, I, okay, well, this isn't going to be a a cakewalk, but at the same time, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. This is going to be tough. We're going to have some battles in front of us, but uh, the way the league was structured was, uh, it was, it was really well structured. I mean, it was the right way to do something. So I couldn't complain too much, although I complained all the time. <laughs> but that was just my way of doing things. Uh, uh, you know, I complained about uniforms. as uh, I complained about uh, many things. But, uh, you know, it, it just uh, it was what it was. And, and I was willing to take, uh, take charge of this. Uh, that first year was disappointing. Uh, you know, we... Uh, we played very well, but we lost to Phoenix in a in a one game playoff structure. <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was just very difficult. So uh, uh, I just thought, okay, well, at least we got through the first year. You know, that's great. Uh, uh, I uh, <laughs> uh, now I start, you know, getting involved in uh, hiring, firing coaches. Uh, and I think in my, uh, what, uh, uh, eight seasons with the, uh, the WNBA, I had nine coaches. So, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it was just one of those things where, uh, uh, you know, I felt like I knew what I was doing. Uh, I felt like I knew who was, going to be trustworthy who was not and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, it was just one of those things where uh, I was going to do my best uh, I was going to to do my part at, at the league meetings and I was going to do as best I possibly could to market this in Los Angeles uh, again knowing my grassroots and my guerrilla marketing uh, that's what we did. Uh, we just uh, started going everywhere we possibly could. The players were very cooperative. You could have 
uh, a player with you at almost any event. Uh, you know, uh, many of them stayed in Los Angeles throughout the off season, and we could use them through uh, uh, for, for uh, promotional events. Uh, everything was going right. Now the only thing that we had to do was win, because I knew that if we could win, uh, that was uh, it was going to change everything. But you were winning in, in in the early, you know, fairly early going. I mean, ninety nine, two thousand. I mean, you were you, you twenty and twelve and two thousand. You had the league best record of twenty eight and four. But there was this Houston Comets dynasty that was kind of hard to crack. But then. As the 2000s dawned and, and Lisa Leslie really started to show her her all star prowess. Right. I mean, um, uh, frankly, a lot of your uh, your hard work was sort of paid off in spades. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, it, it, those first couple seasons uh, were difficult. You know, I mean, I, I had to get my footing. Uh, you know, I had to <laughs> become the bad boy of the WNBA and make sure that everybody was treated equally. Uh, you know, but we weren't, um, uh, you know, Los Angeles was was really given one of the, the greatest women players ever in, in Lisa Leslie. And, uh, you know, to have her on the squad was uh, it just brought everybody together. We became a family. Uh, we traveled together. Um, you know, I uh, I became very close with the with the team and the, and the staff. Uh, and we all worked extremely hard to make sure that, uh, not only did we market, uh, properly, but that we, uh, that we won games. And so, uh, you know, being part, an integral part of the coaching, hiring and firing, um, uh, I basically hired, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the player who made the very first basket in the WNBA, uh, Penny Toller. Uh, Penny Toller became our general manager, and her and I together, uh, I think we put together the right, uh, the right stuff, and we won championships. And uh, uh, we were now, uh, yeah, on top of our game. Everything was going right. We were actually getting... Uh, good crowds at the games. Uh, uh, I was still doing my crazy marketing by having uh, uh, a carnival out at the forum. Uh, and <laughs> uh, prior to the weekend games, uh, you know, because uh, if we played on a Sunday afternoon, uh, I, I, I still struggled with ticket sales. So, uh, I would have a, a carnival <laughs> out in the, in the forum parking lot. Uh, you know, we, we just did everything we possibly could. And, uh, uh, the players appreciated the, uh, the work that all the staff did and the staff appreciated everything that the players did. And it was a great family. Um, it was one of the, it, it has to be the greatest experience of my working career, uh, uh, the WNBA. And, and I lasted uh, uh, basically almost a decade uh, from the time we announced that we were going to do the WNBA to the time that we sold the team, which I think was in uh, 2008. 
uh, and uh, uh, I mean, I, I couldn't say more about the WNBA and all the, uh, the wonderful times that all of us had, uh, even though I would buck heads with David Stern constantly uh, and Val Ackerman. Um, it was still one of those things that was great. Uh, uh, great experience. One of the, and I'm so happy that what is the, the WNBA is what, 22 years old now or something like that. I mean, I, I am so proud of what we have done as founders uh, of the Los Angeles Sparks and uh, uh you know, all the people that worked with me, I, I just can't praise everybody enough. All right. So let's let's um, uh, and look, this has been great. And and we've almost spent two hours together and uh, it's hard to believe. But um, let me ask you sort of maybe this uh, this rapid question. And, and uh, maybe there's another there's a part two somewhere along the way. Uh, but I don't want to you know, I don't want to kill the golden goose at this point yet. Um, uh, what is your thoughts about uh, about the WNBA going forward. And I want to put COVID on the side. I'm, I'm, I'm going to treat it as perhaps as a hopefully temporary situation, but although it may, sports may look different just after all of this is hopefully over at some point anyway, but the WNBA, what, what do you think that's uh, its future, its health, women's basketball generally looks like given your work in those early days, founding that thing and also, similarly, whatever happened to indoor soccer, and can that or could that be a thing at that level for those few years that it wasn't quite the thing ever again, professionally? Well, I mean, with, with the WNBA, um, you know, I'm, I was a, a, a huge, uh, I was affected by Title IX, which basically said that uh, I think... Uh, it was uh, during the Nixon era that we signed Title IX, and Title IX gave uh, women equal opportunity in sports uh, from high school and in high school and college. So um, it affected me because I was on my uh, uh, high school handball team, and they said, "Well, uh, if we don't create a women's handball team, then we can't have a men's handball team." So uh, they basically uh, got rid of the men's handball team or the boys' handball team, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and I thought, gosh, Title IX just destroyed my, my fun. Uh, but then I thought, but Title IX is a really great thing. You know, women should have equal opportunities in high school and, and college. Um, and when I, uh, in the WNBA, if you look at the, the championship banner for the Sparks, uh, there's a Roman numeral <laughs> nine uh, in the corner of the banner. And that was put there by me because I felt that Title IX made the WNBA possible in the first place. Because without Title IX, there wouldn't have been the basketball programs that, uh, that created the players that ultimately played in the NBA. So uh, 
you know, that's a little a trivia tidbit there. But uh, when I went to the league meetings, I, I said, you know, you've got to you've got to go after young girls. You have to go after the even pre high school uh, basketball players, uh, gr- women basketball players, girls pl- basketball. Uh, you've got to go after them. This is a family event. You know, um, I understand that, uh, you know, there's other aspects The f- just, hey, we got to start promoting to women. Hey, we got to start promoting to uh, the uh, lesbian community. Hey, we have to start promoting to, you know, and I, I said, yeah, that's all great. And we should do that. But I'm telling you that 80% of our concentration should be on young girls getting ready to go into high school because uh, as this is a, a great family event. And, uh, and you know, I, that didn't come with a warm welcome. When I, when I was proposing this constantly, it, it was like, yeah, well, you know, maybe uh, families will come out, but they don't really come out on a Wednesday night. So, uh, and I go, that is not true. That is just not true. And in the summertime, we have so many uh, weekend dates that are available in our arenas that maybe we extend the league a month or two and we'll even have more weekend dates. There's no reason that we have to play within some kind of confine uh, because of the NBA or because of the uh, of baseball or the NFL. That's it, we don't have to do that. We're our own league. So let's take 80% of our concentration and go after families, go after young, young girls that are interested in possibly playing in high school or in college or hopefully ultimately in the professional arena. So uh, I'm telling you, it was surprising to me that that did not go over <laughs> with open arms. It it was just shocking to me, truthfully. So, uh, uh, but I did what I wanted to do in, in Los Angeles and I promoted to families and, uh, and we had great groups. Uh, You know, we did get to sell out quite a few times and especially during the playoffs and championships. Yeah. Hey, we had some, uh, you know, 15,000 people crowds, you know, I mean, uh, even more than that. Uh, I think we, you know, uh, I'm trying to think what we had at that time. Uh, I, I guess it really doesn't matter, but, uh, but we were doing what we wanted to do. I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it took winning uh, two championships to finally get the media coverage that I think we were deserving of. Uh, we finally got the ticket sales that we were deserving of, and we finally got the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the praise from the league, uh, office that we were deserving of. Um, but more importantly, you know, uh, my dad was just so proud, uh, that, uh, I did the right thing with the WNBA. Uh, however, there was one person uh, 
that was not very happy about it, and that was Jeannie Buss. Uh, again, Jeannie felt like she was, uh, she should have been the one to have founded uh, the Los Angeles franchise. Uh, and that my dad did not even consider her uh, was, uh, was something that, again, uh, she has never... Uh, she has never forgiven um, my father for or for me um, or to me. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, the WNBA, as great as everything happened, what it did do was it divided uh, the family even more, uh, which was very difficult because I, I was so proud of, of our accomplishments and, uh, you know, I would talk to Jeannie. I'd go, God, you got to come to our games, man. This is so much fun. Um, you know, hey, help me out. Uh, come work with me. Uh, you know, and I said that to all the siblings. But uh, uh, it actually helped divide uh, our family. And so uh, with that, uh, by 2008, 2009, it was like uh, – uh, Okay, you know, it's over. Uh, Jeannie's now uh, uh, working uh, closely with the Lakers and the Forum, uh, working at Staples Center. Uh, you know, Jeannie had enough on her plate, uh, and we just said, hey, you know what, we're we're going to sell the team. And uh, uh, I was I was sad about that, but at the same time. Um, you know, uh, it, I had spent, uh, uh, like I said, a, a decade of my time with the WNBA. I was very proud of what I've done, but it was time to go. Uh, it was time to retire. And what do you th what do you think of the WNBA's future? Again, I just think that they're they're still missing the boat on on families. Uh, I, I still think that. You know, the, if you have longevity, then somebody who's eight years old is soon going to be 14 years old and playing in high school. Yeah, as an aspiration. And, and is soon going to be 19 years old and playing in college. And soon is going to be 22 years old and playing pro sports. So start at the eight-year-old level. Because you know what? Those are your fans. They're the ones that are going to grow up watching your games. And those young girls need their mothers or fathers or other family members to go with them to these games. And if they have any desire to play basketball, which there are millions and millions and millions of young girls that love playing basketball, hey, you know what? <laughs> It's only going to take, you know, five years, 10 years until they're adults. Uh, and, uh, and they're going to be driving themselves to the games and buying their own tickets. Boy, if you have the longevity, then spend all your time promoting to the, to the eight-year-olds right now and, and, and just be done with it. Don't worry about everybody else. Everybody else will come, 
just, you know, it, it's all about the young people. And, you know, I mean, I, I wish I could say that about the NBA, but the NBA will never be like that anymore. Maybe it would have been back in the 60s and the 70s, but you can't, you, you really can't go to a lot of uh, NBA games if, if you're a, a, a youngster, unless you're, you know, you have season seats or your, your dad's company has season seats or something like that. I mean, it's very expensive to go to a game. Uh, you know, thank God that my dad did the right thing about uh, raising the lower bowl and lowering the upper bowl. Um, you know, we've tried to keep that uh, uh, that structure in the Staples Center where, you know, uh, I think you can still get a, a, a ticket to a game uh, for what? Uh, I think the lowest ticket is $32 now or something like that. Um, and at least that's affordable for for a family to go maybe two or three times a season. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're going to be sitting up <laughs> at the top of the crowd. Uh, I, I, I just think that uh, the WNBA is, has lent itself to uh, young families. Uh, it's affordable. The players, uh, there's nothing like, I have never met nicer players than, than players in the WNBA. So, and they're, you know, they're nurturing. They're, they, they know where they came from. Uh, sometimes a lot of NBA players forget where they came from. Uh, and that's, that's sad to, to say, but it's true. Uh, there's a lot of players that do remember where they came from. And I'll tell you what, those same players are the ones that attend WNBA games when they can. Uh, you do see them. Uh, uh, Kobe Bryant was one of the wonderful uh, attendees of our games. Uh, uh, you know, and you can see why. Because he, he had little girls. I, I loved my WNBA experience. Uh, I hope that the NBA, uh, the WNBA lasts forever. It, it deserves to last forever. It's done right. Um, but again, I, I still think that, uh, most of the concentration has to be on families and young, uh, young, young girls. All right. And then last question, do you think indoor soccer comes back? Can it come back? It, 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 fl it flails around in sort of very arguably minor league fashion, but, or do you think that that was just a ship in the night and, uh, that, uh, that time has passed for that sort of level of of hot fun in the winter time. Okay, I'll I'll give you if if you have a little bit of time, I I'll tell you the the secret behind uh something that probably Ronnie I don't know if he did say this or mention it to you, but when my dad gave up the lasers, uh you know, Ronnie said, "Hey, you know, uh, gosh, I don't know what to do." Am I going to go back into ticket sales for the for the for for, for basketball? My your dad gave me uh, an option to go into uh, the ticket sales department uh, or the marketing department, uh, and that was really nice. That you know, I, at least he didn't just say goodbye, Ronnie. Don't ever come back. Uh, you know, he he gave him gave him an option to to work within the the organization. Uh, 
But uh, when I talked to Ronnie, I said, Ronnie, why don't you, why don't you do this? You know the story of Dennis Murphy. I've told you it time and time again. And I'm telling you that you could create your own league and go out and sell franchises and you could, you could structure the league. Now that we have the WNBA structure, we have uh, the, the MISL structure, we know what not to do, <laughs> we know what to do, uh, and structure a new indoor soccer league. It's, it's one of the best sports I've ever seen, if not the best sport I've ever seen. And uh, you can do this. Get a lawyer, work it out, structure it, and go out and, and talk to all our friends in the NBA, uh, people you met in the MISL, and go and sell franchises. You know, start with an 18 league, maybe on the West Coast, you know, and, uh, uh, and lo and behold, <laughs> he actually did it. He said, I'm, I am going to do that. Do you think your dad would want a team? I said, of course he'll, he'll do a team. You know, he still needs his programming. He still needs, he still needs dates. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and sure enough, that's how the, uh, the Continental Indoor Soccer League was formed. It was because Ronnie and Johnny got together and said, what am I going to do in life? And I said, start your own league. It's easy. <laughs> he won't say it was easy at all. But, uh, uh, but that's what happened. And uh, I'm sorry that the, you know, the CISL didn't last. But it's still one of the best sports I've ever seen. And I told Ronnie just maybe a month ago, that, you know, if I had the time and you have the time, maybe what we should do is together we'll do it again and we'll create another indoor soccer league. But we'll do it with the rules and regulations that I think we should do, uh, you know, changes in, in how, the, how play is done, uh, changes in how the, uh, the, the uh uh, pay structure is done. We'll, we would uh, pay the players through uh, a central office, uh, just like the WNBA. And, uh, uh, you know, truthfully, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about creating a, a new indoor soccer league. Why do I have a feeling that this will not be the last of our conversations about the bus family and Los Angeles sports? Um, I, I just sense that there's so much more uh, to explore uh, in so many different uh, dimensions. Um, you know, I, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall uh, with uh, Jerry and his conversations with Jack Kent Cook and how the whole uh, deal sort of came about. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the franchises and the uh, sports stuff that Cook was involved with and, and how, uh, you know, how Jerry really sort of became intrigued by it and and, and just framed it as being uh, within the realm of possibility. Uh, I'd love to get into further 
uh, understanding of that for sure, either with Johnny or his brother, uh, certainly with Jeannie. Uh, we uh, would love to uh, have a chat with uh, with her. We're in contact with her folks. And uh, at some point, hopefully relatively soon, we'll finally get a chance to get into uh, the uh, Roller Hockey International stuff that uh, she was uh, a part of. Uh, and of course, the uh, L.A. Strings uh, stuff that she was part of, all instrumental in what is now a um, uh, unbounded and unchallenged success uh, running the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, those those early days, uh, almost uh, foundational, I think, to, to that success. And we look forward to having a chat with her at some point about all of those and then some. Um, and our pal, uh, Ronnie Weinstein, thank you for putting us in touch with uh, with both of, uh, of these uh, bus family members. And uh, we uh, look forward to uh, getting into more of that kind of stuff um, uh, as soon as uh, our uh, planets align, for sure. Um, uh, we've got lots of great stuff coming up across the entire realm. So many different sports and teams and situations. Lots of great guests coming up. Uh, and we encourage you to uh, continue our journey with us. Uh, the best way, of course, is to subscribe. Why don't you to this little podcast? Just uh, put us in your feed, however you get us. Uh, rate and review us. Why don't you please? Uh, we love those five star ratings, wherever you can do that. That helps the uh, tweak the algorithm a little bit. And others like you who might be uh, intrigued by this content, uh, we would appreciate that uh, to no end. Of course, if you want to find out generally what's going on with this show, the best place, of course, to go is our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our old episodes and all the ones to come will be domiciled there. They're there for you to stream right off the website. You can download them. You can share them. You can do whatever you want with them. And of course, that's also the place for uh, sending us some email. You can do that directly, of course, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, by all means, please do so. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook. You'll see uh, a, uh, a little page devoted to us there. We're on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, and of course, on the website, you can find a little tab there to opt into our weekly newsletter. Just uh, give us your email address and we'll, uh, we'll get you signed up uh, and all that kind of good stuff. And of course, our continued thanks to our pal in Atlanta, who puts our pieces together each and every week. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. His name, of course, the great Dr. Jerry Payne, Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you so much, sir, for your kind twiddling of the knobs this week. We thank you so much for listening, of course, uh, as we do each and every weekend. Uh, take care. Please take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Love you.